The history of racial inequality is not only a history of injustice, it is also a history of refusal, refusal to submit to the racial order. It's a history of visible and hidden protests, a history of individual and collective resistance. It's a history of women and men who, at different times and in different settings, have opposed racial violence through political organizing, artistic projects, street protests, and everyday forms of unseen contestation. The history of racial inequality is a history of many struggles and claims in many different places and times. Future Perfect, Future Antérieur, the podcast of the African Futures Action Lab, provides an account of racial justice claims and protests in and across Africa, Europe, and the Americas. We trace the action's emergence, the strategies employed, the resources needed, and the evolution of these efforts. By taking a close look at these struggles for racial justice, we seek to share ideas and strategies for action with activists, policymakers, or anyone who wishes to take action against racial inequality. This is Future Perfect, the African Futures Action Lab's new podcast, where we talk about various actions and projects, both collective and individual, that tackle racial injustices, racial inequalities, and racial violence. My name is Amaedo. My name is Liliane Mundi. And we will be your co-hosts this season. We are the co-founders and co-directors of the African Futures Action Lab, an organization dedicated to raising awareness on past and contemporary racial injustices and to strengthening racial justice efforts across Europe, Africa, and the Americas. But before we begin this podcast, maybe we should start by telling you a little bit about who we are and then what the African Futures Action Lab is. Lilian, do you want to start by telling us a little bit about yourself? Okay. Uh, my name is Lilian Mobiei. I was born in Rwanda. I moved to Belgium when I was 10. I'm based uh, between Paris and Brussels. I have a PhD in law and sociology. I've conducted research on apartheid victims' movements in South Africa. And I work as a researcher and practitioner in international development on access to justice and rule of law. Great. I'm Ama, and I am Togolese-American. I have a PhD in anthropology. And my research has been on the idea of Africanness and how this idea of what is African is negotiated between West Africa and Western Europe in particular. And Liliane and I together decided to take on this venture and create an organization that addresses racial injustice today. So maybe we should talk about how the Afalab came about. Well, the idea really began in 2020 um, when, as was the case for many of you, I imagine, the mobilizations that took place around the world around the murder or in response to the murder of George Floyd really were at the foreground of our attention and of a lot of the media coverage at the time. I was in Boston, where I've been based for the past many years. And at first, um, I didn't really think that there was anything different happening with these protests from what had happened in the past, from the many Black Lives Matters protests that 
have been taking place for years following the murder of unarmed black people by the police in the U.S. And also, you know, it was the beginning of COVID. And that's where for many of us, that was, that's where our attention was. And it wasn't until friends of mine in Europe told me, hey, there's really something different happening here. The protests here in Europe are massive. You know, that's when I paid attention and turned to actually look at what was happening in the U.S., what was happening even in Boston, in my own city. And I realized that the moment was different. There was something There was not only a different scale, but a different sort of weight to what was unfolding at that time. And Liliana, I know you were watching and following from Brussels. Yeah, I think it was um, somehow similar to what you were experiencing. In the sense that at the beginning, I didn't want to watch this uh, video. And then I started to realize that many people, many friends, uh, black and white friends, were starting to uh, to get mobilized. We're starting to ask, like, uh, where will be the demonstrations? Where will be uh, the protests? That's the first moment when I realized that it was different. And then right after that, I remember I was running in the park, Forest Park, uh, not far from here, listening to this podcast where Tanisikos was interviewed by a journalist and he was remembering having a conversation with his father who was a civil rights activist. And his father was saying, this moment is different compared to, compared to the 60s where, uh, because we do not have the support of so many uh, white folks. I, I, I realized that this was effectively something different. And then right after that, or I think a couple of weeks after that, the King of Belgium decided to... Uh, to express his regrets to DRC for, for the Belgian colonization. And a couple of days later, the Belgian decided to, uh, to set up a special commission in charge of examining its colonial past. And I think maybe it's worth underscoring really the significance of these regrets that were expressed by the King of Belgium for Belgium's actions in the Congo and in Burundi and Rwanda. Why was that so significant? I think it's one of the first uh, head of state somehow to express uh, his regrets, I mean, for colonial acts, and especially at this moment, because it was in the midst of the BLM protests. And also it was a couple of days after the mixed race children decided to sue Belgium for the crimes against humanity that were committed against them in the 60s. And this will be the focus of a future episode of Futur Antérieur, Future Perfect, the case of mixed-race children who were removed from their African mothers by the Belgian state during colonization and then abandoned and subjected to a great deal of abuse. And these children who are now elderly women and men, five of these women brought a case against the Belgian state asking for reparation and for justice to be done for the harms that they incurred. Stay tuned for the full episode on this incredible and complicated case. Something that you brought up that I think is really important as we think about these protests is the ways that they made the 2020 protests, the ways that they made a link between the past and the present. Because it wasn't just about whether it was happening in the U.S. or in Europe. It wasn't just about this racial violence that was happening now, but it was making a connection, an explicit connection between the racial violence of today and in the American context, slavery. 
and in Europe between the racial violence of today and the past of colonization. And so this this thing with the the king of Belgium is a, is a nice kind of example, right, for how the past and the present were coming into contact in 2020. It's important that you mentioned this aspect. A lot of people were not aware during these protests. And that's part of the many problems that struck me during these protests is that the, the lack of knowledge of the reality of racial violence, uh, the past and the present, but also the link between uh, slavery, colonizations, and the contemporary racial injustices. This is something that struck me a lot in the way the media were reporting about these facts, the way the policymakers, state authorities at the European level or in European countries were talking about these facts. We also know that in Europe, we lack data about the the contemporary violence. I think one thing with, with these protests, speaking from my experience, watching them unfold, on one hand, you know, I was really inspired by the magnitude, right, of the response everywhere. On the other hand, I was like, you know, Black people know this has been happening forever. Like, not, none of this is, is new, right? And so on one level, the fact that the world was like, oh, my God, there is, you know, anti-Black racism is massive. On one hand, was annoying and, and not just annoying, but offensive because we've been saying this for literally centuries, right? So the fact that all of a sudden the rest of the world was waking up was both an opportunity and perhaps a chance, a sign that, you know, there were new possibilities opening, but then also irritating in some regards. But I think, you know, to go back to what you were saying, maybe what was different here is that it was also this thing about the link with the past, because as much as we know that racial violence has been a thing forever, the awareness of the ways in which colonialism has shaped the realities for black and brown people in Europe or the ways specifically that slavery and the Jim Crow era and kind of that history has continued to shape institutions and what racism looks like, right, in this very structural sense in the U.S., that is not always necessarily clear, right? Even so, we might know the, the reality of current racism, but we don't necessarily have a strong grasp of the connection with the past, Mm-hmm. I think it's the the situation. The European context is uh, slightly different, slightly compared to the U.S. or uh, the Americas. I think in the U.S., even if this connection is not clear enough uh, for many people, I think in schools, in terms of education system, there are monuments uh, which mm-hmm. is very different, mm-hmm. uh, which is very different for Europe, where. Mm-hmm. Europe and many European countries have constructed themselves by cutting the link to their colonies and where they used to have plantations. So the, there is a, a deep ignorance or lack of knowledge that is so deep here, not only at the level of policymakers, but in the broad public. And this for me was that aspect. And if we add to that the fact that there is no data about the current violence, this was a problem if we want to tackle racial inequalities today. We can't go anywhere. We can't address this problem if we don't know what happened, if we don't know what is still happening. And we can't measure the impact. That's a really powerful way uh, of putting it. Yeah, yeah. So both the fact that you need to both know what happened in the past and what's happening today. Yeah. Right. Or to have it documented and to have it be have this data, right, specifically beyond just our sense of what's happening. Yeah. And I think uh, for someone, at least for me, who was working in, a, in an international NGO 
have been used to see the same mode of organization where you need, the first thing to do is to try to understand a problem and then you you gather data to see how you're going to resolve that problem. This was not happening and it was not happening at this level. There was no organization at the global level doing it. And yes, there was a problem. Mm-hmm. And maybe this is a good place to talk about how, you know, why then Afalab came about as an institution. I think on a personal level, I mean, it's a mix of both personal and professional. As you were saying, in terms of your own experience, that there wasn't in the organizations that you were working in, the connections being made between the problem of global racism, global anti-Black racism, and, you know, the data that's needed to address it in order to develop strategies. And there wasn't kind of a concerted effort at an international level or transnational level towards assessing the the problem in order to devise a strategy broadly. Um, and I think that kind of connects to, for both you and me, our personal political commitment to these questions. I think if I speak for my case, you know, my trajectory until now has been academic. And it was really important for me to move between the university setting, between the academic setting and the real world, right? And to make this knowledge that is being produced every day by so many scholars everywhere accessible to people on the ground also. Um, And this has always been one of my gripes with the academy. And so I know when you came to me with the idea of the lab to say, hey, how about we create something where we can actually facilitate connections between different forms of practice and um, make this knowledge that's being produced in different places accessible more broadly. It was, you know, it felt exactly right. It was everything that I wanted to get into. As you say, it reflects both our trajectories coming from uh, academia, wanting to use um, the knowledge that is produced uh, within academia and to make it accessible and useful for whether it's policymakers, whether it's uh, activists. And I think that's been our raison d'être to say that there is a lot of knowledge in academia on these topics a lot in American university, maybe a little less in a European university or African universities for multiple reasons. And this knowledge hasn't been used when it does exist or hasn't been uh, productive. So if we want this concern to be a public problem, we need to uh, bring this knowledge outside of university and make it useful for policymakers and activists. Yeah, and I think that's how we said, let's go. We said, let's go. And the Afalab was born. <laughs> and so in case you haven't gathered so far, what we do at the Afalab is that we facilitate the exchange of knowledge across different areas of practice. So between the academy, between sort of the researchers and activists and policymakers. And this is knowledge that's being produced about racial inequalities and racial justice movements. And the idea is to strengthen these efforts that are underway. Right. And to yeah. do it across Europe, Africa and the Americas. Exactly. The idea is to make this knowledge accessible and exchange it between these different publics. Yeah, for me, it's important to see uh, knowledge here as a, as a weapon that can be used in uh, racial justice struggles, the same way as we can use law, the same way as we can uh, use like a street protest. It's part of the weapons of, that we can use to, uh, to advance racial justice. So we're talking about the connections that are necessary to establish between what's happening today, the racial violence of today, and the historical events that have produced this world that we live in, right? So specifically thinking about slavery and colonization, and the ways that across Europe, the Americas, and Africa, still today, these histories have shaped the power dynamics and the racial order that we experience, and that the protests in 2020 were speaking against. 
And so this is a nice segue into the name of our podcast, the wonderful name that Liliane came up with, Futur Antérieur, Future Perfect. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about why, what I verb tense, because it's a verb tense, why that spoke to you? Mm -hmm. I think we have been, we were looking for a name like for several weeks. Uh, we had so many ideas and we couldn't find like, the, the good one. And then I think I was in a supermarket. <laughs> we get an insight into Lilian's private life. She runs and she shops, okay? <laughs> and I think for us, uh, from what I remember from the dis different discussion that we had, there were many things that were important. It is one of the many ingredients in the Athalab idea is that there is this uh, geographic connections between the continents, but there are also these connections between time, the past injustices, the present, and the future that we can hope that we can build. I couldn't find like a name uh, with geography that would have like uh, three locations and it would be too long. And um, I was thinking about like a, a verb tense. The future was like the first tense because of uh, what we are trying to do, the future that we're trying to build. And the second idea that I had in mind was uh, the goal of this podcast, what we're trying to, to do. And from the different conversation we had, the idea of talking about actions that people do now, but also that can inspire other people, was an, uh, something that we wanted to, uh, to be reflected in this podcast. And yeah, in French, futur antérieur, which is a tense that is, it's not easy to explain. Basically, the idea is to say, I will be happy when there will be racial justice. Something that will have happened in order for this future to exist. Yes. And it was completely in line with the idea of uh, this podcast to, to invite people, guests, talk about the actions that they're doing and other people can do in order to work for racial justice in the future, yeah. to be realized. Well, Lilian had sent me many ideas for uh, <laughs> podcast names and each time I was like... Mm. Maybe we should keep thinking. <laughs> She's better at titles than I am. And this one she sent, I was like, yes, all the way, yes. But this and I is, was so relieved. <laughs> <laughs> this is making me think about the notion of the future on two levels. One, it also figures in the name of the lab, right? So the African Futures Action Lab. And it really is central to our mission. And these days it's making me, you know, I'm thinking more and more about the idea of The fact that we need to think, like imagine the future. Like I remember the first time I heard someone say that, that it's not just, you know, doing any kind of social justice work it has to be about more than just rehearsing what the problem is. And I'm, and which is important, right? We need to make clear what the problem is. It's, it's essential. It's not just important. It's absolutely critical. But we need to know what we're wanting, what we're working towards, right? And I forget who said, I mean, a number of people have said it, right? So Octavia Butler, the science fiction writer, had written a lot about it. Ruha Benjamin, a science and technology studies scholar, also has written about this thing about imagining, um, investing in imagination as a practice of liberation, right? That in order to know what we're working towards, we have to engage actively in imagining this future. And so that's why I really love this future anterior, this future perfect to say, you know, we're imagining this future that is going to be. And what we're trying to do now is, you know, all the things that need to happen in order for us to get there. So, well done, again, for finding that name. <sighs> Too many young youth lost to television Chasing the American dream Tell me who they dream Dream for Africa Too many young youth Believe in the hype Living in a stereotype Tell me who they live Dream for Africa So, Lilian, what's coming up for the rest of the season? 
a lot of guests, a lot of interesting stories and uh, projects that you could hear from activists, researchers from Europe, Africa, the Americas. For example, um, we have Olivia Rutazibgag, who is going to come and talk about decolonized international development. And we will have Mamfa Tuniang, a French scholar, artist, photographer, many things. She's going to talk about racial justice in US, Europe, and maybe a little bit in Africa. Right. So, you know, this is a new venture for us in the, in many ways. The lab is a new thing that is kind of this baby that we've been growing for the past year. And this podcast is our first, it's not our first foray into the public because we've held conferences and we have publications, but this is maybe our first uh, broad audience product. <laughs> and so we're very excited um, to be um, connecting with the, with you all in this, uh, through this medium. And I think it's also important to think this podcast and to, uh, to understand it in the way it is articulated with the different Afala projects. So beside the podcast, which is focusing on what people are doing to uh, tackle racial justice, we have also the racial justice dashboard that is more a diagnosis of uh, racial justice problems. And then we will do many publications, research, reports, policy briefs that can address this topic. So stay tuned for the rest of the season. The episodes will be released every two weeks. This podcast is bilingual. Not so much that we're doing every episode in both languages, but we will be alternating the language of the different episodes, not only because I'm more comfortable in English and Liliane is more comfortable in French, but also because an essential part of this work is to, is to make connection. And it, it's pretty mind-blowing just how much language alone creates barriers, right? And of course, we're, we're, you know, we're working with two languages, working with two colonial languages, right? There's so much more that would need to be done, but we're hoping that at least by having these two languages, it allows us to reach publics across more countries, right? So that we're able to connect with um, French speakers across Europe, Africa, as well as, yeah, I guess Canada has French speakers also, so in the Americas and the Caribbean. And maybe one day, who knows, maybe in Kenya, Rwanda and in Creole. We invite you to support the Afalab's work. Uh, please check out our website. The address is africanfutures.mit.edu. You can also write to us at africanfutures.mit.edu. And you can find us on LinkedIn and on Twitter. We're not yet on Instagram. We're kind of out of that age bracket. But we're making our way to, to the youths. We will find them. Thank you for your support. And we look forward to being in conversation with you this season. Bye-bye and thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>